0: Well, in the past several weeks, we've we've seen the mission of the gospel expanding outwards from Jerusalem and uh, Judea to Samaria, which if you picture a map of Israel in your mind, it's kind of in north-central uh, Israel, where a number of Samaritans believed the gospel Uh, and then to Caesarea, where the first Gentiles believed the message about Jesus, and then last week we saw that there was a movement northward to places like Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, uh, out into the Mediterranean, to the island of Cyprus, and then to the northeast again to the city of Syrian Antioch, which uh, someone asked me last week, does Antioch, is it still there, or is it just ruins? And... Uh, there are ruins there, but there is a modern city, on Antakya, uh, which uh, today, in modern times, is a part of Turkey. Um, at the time, Antioch was the third most significant um, city in, in the Roman Empire. Just after Rome itself and Alexandria, Egypt, uh, it becomes somewhat apparent that, that God was... About to do something in Antioch, maybe was already doing something special in Antioch because there was a sudden movement it seems of Christians that felt called to go to antioch uh, who who seemed to have a spirit driven determination just just to get there um, and what resulted is that as they shared the gospel there. It was received, people believed the gospel, a church was established uh, that had an international congregation of both Jews and Gentiles from a variety of places in the Mediterranean region. Our text this morning speaks in four brief verses of yet another subsequent movement of God by his spirit uh, that took place in and through that church in Antioch. And will you please stand with me? Just four verses. You don't have to stand very long this morning. Four verses together. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. You may be seated. I thought about for a while just skipping these four verses. They seemed kind of an odd little addendum to the rest of what happens in chapter 11. But the more I uh, read them and kind of pondered, uh, I realized that there's, uh, that there's some power in here in these four verses. I've, I've titled this message, How Not to Miss Out on a Movement of God how not to miss out on a movement of God. And if if you're a real believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that is if if you're a genuine Christian, here, here's something I know about you without even having to ask, that, that you have a spirit-driven desire to be a part of what God is doing in your church and, and in your community and in your world. Uh, you don't really want to miss out on any of it. You You may have bad days. But the fact is that you don't want to miss out on, on anything that God is going to do. And and you can see God at work here in the United States. You can see him uh, at work around the world. and And you can perceive desperate needs in the church and in the world. Uh, and yet you may often feel like a spectator rather than a purposeful participant in that work that God is doing. In these four verses, Acts 11, 27 to 30, uh, I'd like to just this morning s- set out four simple directives to becoming a purposeful participant in the work of the kingdom of God uh, instead of a sideline spectator. So here's the first, be receptive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, be receptive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Go back with me to verses 27 and 28. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, notice, first of all, that Luke tells us that prophets came down uh, from Jerusalem to Antioch. We, We would say that they had come up. In fact, if you and I were going to, be, going to go today maybe up to, uh, go see, I already said it, up. Up, If we were to go to Seattle or if we were to go to Bellingham or we were to go to Vancouver, B.C., we would say we're going up, right, because it, it's to the north. But in those days and even now in the language of, of that region, everything uh, was considered down from Jerusalem. Um, in this case, it was entirely true. Jerusalem is situated at just below 2,500 feet above sea level. Um, while Antioch, or Antakya today, is at just 220 feet uh, above sea level. It's kind of unusual, I think, then, to also to, to read about groups of prophets. Now, in the Old Testament, we, we, as we read about the prophets there, we, we kind of get conditioned to think of uh, to thinking of prophets as somewhat singular, somewhat solitary. Um, sometimes they live in, you know, rural places apart from everyone else, and they they have strange diets and wear strange clothes and do strange things. They're they're just kind of singular, solitary people. But in the church age, even prophets, it seems, minister in community. How many of you know this morning that that we as Christians are always better together? We're always better together. When we're serving together in community. And one of these prophets name was Agabus. I, I didn't bother to find out what that name means. It's just interesting all by itself, isn't it? Um, This isn't his only appearance in Acts. He's, this is kind of his uh, debut performance, but we're going to see him again in Acts chapter 21 when he delivers another pretty powerful, pretty profound prophecy. And some have said in, in some cases quite strongly that there, there is no place in the New Testament church for prophets. That because we have in the Old and New Testaments the fullness of revelation from God, the role of the prophet is no longer needed. It's no longer necessary. It's no longer relevant. And yet, and yet, in Ephesians chapter four, for example, in verses 11 and 12, The apostle Paul wrote that he, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And and it's interesting, isn't it, that that Paul uh, saw an ongoing role for prophets and the ministry of prophecy in the New Testament church, and and here he presents the spiritual gift of prophet alongside apostles, alongside evangelists, pastors, and teachers in that work of equipping believers to do the work of ministry so that the body of Christ will be built up. Well, what is the specific ministry of a prophet? As we look at the uh, The biblical witness. Allow me to suggest just, just a simple definition that flows, I think, out of the whole of the Bible. Very simple definition is that prophecy is hearing a word from God. It's hearing that word from God, and then it's simply repeating what God said to the, to the audience that he intends for that message. Hearing a word from God, repeating what God said to his intended audience. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4 is writing about the exercise of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. At verse 10 he gives this general command to every believer as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, I love that word varied in 1 Peter 4 11 or 4, 1 Peter 4 10 God's varied grace, it, it, uh, it means God's multicolored grace. If you're a gardener, you think about a variegated leaf that, with lots of different colors in the leaf. And that's that picture. It's just a kaleidoscopic view of, of all of, of the, the gifts that God has given to the church in all of their diversity and of all of their color and all of their influence. So each of us has received a gift, he says, so use it to serve one another as good stewards of that varied grace of God, that, that multicolored, multidynamic grace of God. And then in verse 11, he addresses those with the gift of prophecy and says, whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. And hence this simple definition, that prophecy is hearing a word from God and repeating what God said to his intended audience. In Scripture, we find that there are two primary functions within that gift of prophecy. One, the one we think of most often, is what I would just call foretelling. Foretelling, or or another way of describing that is predictive prophecy. God revealing through the prophet things that are to come that are necessary for the church to know and understand and to act upon. And then secondly, along with the ministry of foretelling comes the ministry of forthtelling. Forthtelling. Forthtelling is simply relaying to God's people truths that have been previously revealed in scripture. And, and in this sense of the prophetic gift, forthtelling telling is it's kind of the same as what we would call preaching today. It's a proclamation of the Word of God as He has already revealed it. So preaching must always be the exposition of God's revealed Word, guided by the Holy Spirit and delivered by godly, spirit-filled men and women. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22, Moses gave to the Israelites... A threefold test for those who would exercise a prophetic ministry. You didn't know you're going to get all this out of four verses, did you? But but we don't often think about the the prophetic ministry as it exists today, as it as it ought as it ought to be exercised in the church, and as we see it being exercised here through Agabus and his buddies. So I just thought, why not take a moment? And and just kind of unfold it. I don't have time to do an exhaustive presentation today, but but some some basic principles. So, again, Deuteronomy eighteen to twenty, 20 to twenty two, a, a threefold test for those who would exercise uh, this gift, this ministry of prophecy. And he says, "But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak." or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how do we discern between that which God has spoken and that which he has not? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So from this passage, three simple tests for a prophet. First, a prophet must speak in the name of the Lord God. Prophet Ezekiel in chapter 22 was laying out a list of tragic conditions in Israel that taken together added up to... A national disaster. And he described one of them in verse 28 when he said, Her prophets, her prophets, have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The prophets have smeared whitewash, and today we would say hogwash. Right? Right? Seeing false visions, divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. You know, I'll never forget uh, one of the pastors in a church I served formerly, when uh, who, when recruiting people to serve in the area of, of ministry that he oversaw, had the habit of saying to them, God has given me a vision for you serving in this way. You just fill in the blank, you know, whatever whatever it was he was looking for and i heard one day from one of those people pastor jim i heard from pastor mm, 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 i heard from him that he has a vision for god from god for me serving in this particular area and and i have not heard god speak one thing to me about that And when I heard about that, I, I went back to that pastor and I, I proceeded to exhort him to, uh, cease and desist using that very inappropriate and I think manipulative approach. And because what was he doing? He he was lying to them about a vision from God in order to persuade them to serve. And he was saying in the words of the prophet Ezekiel, thus, says the Lord God, when the Lord God has not spoken. The vision came from his imagination and his need for personnel. By the way, I have a vision for each of you from God to serve at kids' camp, just just so you know. But what was he doing? He, he was putting people in, in a very uncomfortable sit position, because if they happened to say no then were they opposing God? Were they disobeying God? Um, And and were they being insubmissive to their leader? And by the way, if God is calling you to serve in a specific area, he may may tell a leader first, but somewhere along in that conversation, he's going to clue you in that he wants you to serve there as well. It won't be just from the leader. Secondly, second principle, a prophecy must be in accord with the revealed word of God. Uh, in Isaiah 8, verse 20, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, to the teaching and to the testimony, that is to the, to the word of God. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. It's another way of saying they have no spiritual light. And they won't they, they don't possess spiritual light, they won't be able to deliver spiritual light to you unless it comes from God's word. Third, a predictive prophecy, that is that a fourth uh, or a foretelling rather must come to pass. It must come true. in jeremiah twenty eight nine when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known. That the Lord has truly sent the prophet. You see, God takes this matter of prophecy, whether foretelling or forth telling, very seriously. You might say deadly seriously. And so again, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, back to that text, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So that pastor that I was talking to you about earlier, I killed him right there. <laughs> just just kidding. See, you and I, though, need to seriously scrutinize those today who claim to be prophets and foretell future events who are frequently proven wrong. Um, for example... Uh, during the last presidential election cycle, uh, I noticed many self-appointed, self-styled, so-called prophets who are given a platform, who are on TV, who are on YouTube, who are all over the place, that made all kinds of audacious predictions about the outcome of that election. And then in the aftermath, made predictions about corrections that they thought, they seem to think God was saying he was going to make, which also did not come to pass. None of it came to pass. And I think their church has probably killed them too. So, I don't know, just, again, just kidding. Prophecy, but if you don't serve at kids camp, you know, prophecy is not at all like meteorology. You know, somebody said that, being a weather reporter is the only job in the country where you can be wrong more than 50% of the time and still remain employed, um, especially here in the Northwest. Nor is it nor is it like baseball when, when you can fail to reach first base at least four out of five times at bat. In Judaism, the penalty for claiming to speak for God, for saying, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken and subsequently being proven false, even just once, even just once was death. It's that serious to God that his word is not represented or misrepresented. Back then to Agabus. Was Agabus receptive to the voice of the Holy Spirit? He was. Luke says that, that he prophesied by the Spirit. His credibility as a prophet of God was proven to be genuine by the fact that the famine that, he, that famine that he predicted actually came to pass. Biblical historians estimate that Agabus gave his prophecy in about 44 A.D. and that the fulfillment came about two years later in A.D. forty-six. Well, what was the nature of the prophecy again? He was it was a prediction. A predictive prophecy, a foretelling that there would be a great famine over all the world. And we need to understand what he's saying there, because in fact the word Agabus used didn't predict a worldwide famine in the way we might think of it. But but rather that word is oikumene, it's a it's a distinctive word that, that meant only the inhabited world. The inhabited world, which gives still a lot of latitude. Uh, I understand that the Romans often used this word in an exaggerated sense as a euphemism for just the Roman Empire. They were arrogant enough to think that they were they were the inhabited world. <laughs> but the famine that Agabus prophesied took place, Luke tells us, in the days of Emperor Claudius Caesar. That's kind of the way they dated things back then. When did that happen? It happened during the reign of Claudius. Well, he reigned from about 41 AD to about 54 AD. And historians have, uh, actually no record of a worldwide famine, nor even of a, an empire-wide famine during those years. However, however, the Roman historian Suetonius wrote that there were actually frequent fam- famines here and there, maybe not a worldwide famine, not, maybe not an empire-wide famine, but frequent Famines here and there, all across the empire, at various times in various places. Another historian of the day, Josephus, wrote of a great famine during the reign of Claudius that affected the region of Judea, which was which is where the city of Jerusalem is, uh, which was the result of a succession of bad harvests uh, in Judea, and then kind of the the rolling effects of famine in other parts of the empire so as a result many people in Judea were very hungry many of them died of starvation during that period of time so Agabus was was receptive to the voice of the Holy Spirit as we will see so were the disciples in Antioch which leads us to the second principle which is be responsive to real human need be responsive to real human need why why Because that's what real Christians do. That's what real Christians do. You know, I was thinking about this scenario this past week and wondered how Christians might respond to a similar prophetic message if they received it today. And I think that there would... Most likely be some who would freak out. They'd, they'd blame the whole thing either on the Republicans or the Democrats, depending on their political posture. They, they might quit their jobs, uh, sell their homes, probably move to Idaho, Texas, or Florida. What do you think? Right? Kind of a pilgrimage going on to all those places. It also occurred to me that there would be some whose response could be summarized in the statement, I'll take care of me and my family. Family. I'll take care of me and my family, and so they they turn their front yards and their backyards into you know raised garden beds and buy some chickens, start growing chickens, uh, stock up on ammunition. i um, ammunition. I'll, I'll take care of me and my family, and there then there will probably be others who would say we will take care of us. Now uh, speaking of their own church or even of their own community, and, and notice that. Both responses, I'll take care of me and my family, we'll take care of we and us, would be inwardly focused. They would be self-serving. They would be self-protective. But listen to what the Apostle John had to say. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Stop right there. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. We know that our spiritual condition of spiritual death has been changed, and now we are spiritually alive Why? How do we know that? By this one diagnostic that we love the brothers. Not that we have right doctrine. Not that we have the right political stance. Not even that we just do good deeds. But because we love other Christians. We love other Christians. So John's giving us a a critical diagnostic for, for assessing our spiritual vitality. I wonder if you've ever had a question about whether you're really a Christian. Most of us have. Most of us have, have had those thoughts. Of, Am I really born again? Am I really... Have I experienced, have I caught the real disease? Have I really been, experienced that transformation that the Bible talks about, that regeneration of being, being transferred from death to life? Being born again? And John says, here's how you can know. Do you have an abiding, active love for other Christians? Are are, are you driven to be part of the Christian community? Are you driven to to be living in vital relationships with others within the community of believers? Let's continue. He goes on, whoever does not love abides in death. You hear that? You don't love. If that's not your basic posture... It's possible you're not even spiritually alive. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And again, let's hit the pause button. Do you hate your brothers and sisters in Christ? And you say, oh, of course not. Of course I don't hate my brothers and sisters in Christ. I I wouldn't want to do any." anyone wrong or inflict pain or punishment in, in any way on them. Now let me just suggest to you this morning that, that hatred is not that. Hatred is not accurately defined as active animosity that's, that's kind of laced with anger. Instead, hatred, as, if you think about it as the opposite of love, is active apathy. Of not feeling anything in particular when it comes to other believers in Christ. And so I ask you this morning, does your brand of Christianity, your particular brand of Christianity, allow you to stand apart from the local church, apart from the community of believers, to, to not feel any particular motivation or longing, to be vitally and integrally engaged in relationship within a local church, to divorce yourself from the needs of of other believers that you might otherwise have the resources to meet. That would be a biblical definition of hatred. It's active apathy. He goes on, By this we know love, that, that he laid down his life for us... And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And again, we we might say, well, man, if, it, if push came to shove, I'd, I'd give my life for someone else. But in what he's about to say next, John's going to provide us with a practical application of what he thinks laying down our lives for each other ought to look like. And remember, we're talking about scripture that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's God speaking through John. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth and while we're at it let's just let's just throw in the words of James the brother of Jesus in chapter 2 14 through 17 when he says what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him If a brother or sister is, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, is dead. Between John and James, we're, we're given a clear diagnostic, aren't we? For, for assessing spiritual Reality, spiritual vitality, spiritual health, bottom line, if, if you have what another Christian desperately needs and you're unwilling to share it, then you're not who you say you are as a Christian. You'd like me to move on? Probably. Here's the next principle. Be ready to give and serve generously. It flows right out of that, doesn't it? Be ready to give and serve generously. Let's let's look back at at our text again. Acts eleven twenty nine and thirty. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the disciples in Antioch were receptive to the voice of the Holy Spirit themselves. They acted in compassion and generosity. It says a lot about the church about the character of the church in Antioch. And and maybe it's no wonder then that the surrounding community called them Christians. Because what they saw in the life of that church reflected what, what they kind of knew about Jesus. It's funny about the world having this sixth sense about whether we're real or not. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And, and, and the late Francis Schaefer I've said this to you a lot of times, but it, it's is Kind of an important thing he he said, it seems like God has given to the world the right to judge whether we're 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 authentic in our claim to be the disciples of Jesus Christ by this one thing is is there an observable, tangible, practical love within the community of believers there in Antioch they acted in ways that were Consistent with the exhortations that Paul also gave to the Galatians and Philippians. First of all, Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do you know that in your giving, God expects you to give priority to the church? And I'll use big C church. But in practical terms, in the New Testament, it was the Little C Church as well, the local church. Philippians 2, 4, and 5. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I remember memorizing the book of Philippians at one time, and... and, uh, And when I memorized it, that last phrase, which is yours in Christ Jesus, said, um, which was was also in Christ Jesus. ESV is is actually more accurate. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, not not which should be yours, but which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here again is another diagnostic statement. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you will have this mind in you to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's part of the character of Christ living in us. Check this out. Neither Agabus nor the other prophets who came to Antioch with him solicited any financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. Do you see that there? These guys aren't peddling anything. They're not solicitors. Agabus came and said, this is going to happen. There's a famine coming that's going to hit Judea. There's no ask whatsoever. Nor did the prophets bring a request from the Jerusalem church for famine relief. Neither did Saul or Barnabas say, hey, church, you ought to to respond to this. What we're told is The disciples at Antioch spontaneously determined on their own when they heard the prophecy that they should send relief to Judea. And by the way, this word determined here, this is the only place in the entire New Testament that this particular verb is used of anyone else but God. And what do we know about the determination of God? That when God decides something is going to be so, it will be so. And so this word speaks of a uh, of an unwavering, irreversible resolve on the part of the disciples at Antioch. They determined they would not be deterred to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And, and you know what? What a quick reversal of roles we see here. The mother church in Jerusalem had 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 sent. Barnabas to Antioch, remember that? We saw that not too long ago. And now the daughter church in Antioch sends back Barnabas and Saul to the mother church in Jerusalem with a generous financial gift in hand. Crazy. And they did this, it says, everyone according to his ability. Each gave freely what he wanted to give and was able to give. There's an echo here, isn't there, of of Acts 2, verse 45, right after the day of Pentecost, when we read that uh, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And in Acts 4.35 when Luke told us that that there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And then if you recall, Barnabas was used as Exhibit A. And here's Barnabas in Antioch at a time of need. You know, I've sometimes wondered whether... Karl Marx, the father of modern socialism, who, who grew up Lutheran, I'm told, um, kind of had these two passages in, in his mind uh, when he uh, called for German socialists to, to inscribe on their banners, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. And of course, there's, there's nothing of communism or socialism or even a welfare state implied or even promoted here. Remember the communism always says what's yours is ours, we'll take it. What's yours is ours, we'll take it. Whereas Christianity always says what's mine is yours, I'll share it. Whatever your political and economic convictions, these, these are clearly biblical principles. Within the body of Christ, connecting ability with need, and these these principles are to characterize the ways that we conduct ourselves within the family of God. God God meets needs uh, uh, of His people primarily through the generosity of other Christians. And you look you look at the the New Testament, particularly here in the Book of Acts and and in in the Epistles, when when there was a time of need, generally speaking. I mean, there were some, there were some miraculous interventions we could point to. But generally speaking, it was Christians helping other Christians. Christians who had more sacrificing to help those who had less. And when you think about it, God, God could have miraculously provided food for the Jewish believers in the Jerusalem church, but in this case, He met their needs through the compassion of the believers in Antioch, Jews and Gentiles in a church 450 miles away from Jerusalem in those days, a long distance. And that's a miracle all of its own. You know, we're hearing reports, aren't we, in the news these days about um, impending food shortages uh, and of of the prospect of famines taking place in various parts of the world and and you and I may be faced with the challenge of providing relief to our brothers and sisters in Christ in in some of those places some of them may be right here in the united states how will we respond how will we respond uh, might Living according to these biblical principles in times like this cost us something? Certainly might. Certainly might. Later in Acts we'll see Paul soliciting financial support from Gentile churches for the mother church in Jerusalem and Judea once again on on another occasion. In fact, some biblical historians viewing what Paul was doing on that occasion believe that their need was brought on in part by their extreme generosity so that... uh, They gave so much that it led in time to their own impoverishment. They were reflecting in their own lives the example of Jesus, as Paul described it to the church in Corinth when he wrote, For you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And church, may we reflect the sacrificial love and compassion of Jesus Christ in the ways we respond to human need and be ready to love and serve in tangible ways. Finally, be at rest in God's faithful provision. You say, where's that in the text? And I would say, it's not. It's not. But it's implied, isn't it? It's implied. Because why? Because any time we extend ourselves sacrificially, we need to trust that God is going to meet our need at the same time. Now we have this wonderful promise in Philippians four nineteen, and my God will supply every, every, every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You ever get anxious about your finances? I do. You know, I can get into a funk sometimes, but here, there it is. And it's a promise. My God, not might supply, my God will supply. Not some needs, but every need of yours. How? Because He can afford it. According to His riches and glory, in Christ Jesus. You believe that? Are you willing to put God's promises to the test? Or are you willing to be sacrificially generous when specific needs arise in the, the worldwide body of Christ? Or even the local body of Christ where you can responsibly make a difference in someone's life? Will you trust God to supply for your needs? as you reach out to meet the needs of others. Jesus said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't know God, seek after all these things, and and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and all these things, all these things will be added to you promise from the mouth of Jesus so here in Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30 these four little verses Luke Luke's given us a description of a moment in the life of uh, uh, of the first century church that can serve as a diagnostic for the life of the 21st century church and, and directives that will help us not to miss out on a movement of God If you and I will will put into practice these simple principles, I I think we'll find ourselves no longer sitting on the sidelines as spectators, but rather getting into the game, purposely participating in in what God is about in this world. So here they are again, all four, be receptive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, be responsive to real human need, be ready to give and serve generously, and be at rest in God's faithful provision, knowing that you can never, ever, ever outgive the Lord. It's impossible. He will always provide. God has much for us to do in the days and months and years ahead. May I ask you, will you please partner with us? Uh, Not as sideline spectators, but as Purposeful participants in, in all that God wants to do in and through Life Point Church. Will you pray for the, the clear direction of the Holy Spirit for each of us and all of us? Will you pray for the, the leaders of the church, the pastors and the elders? And will you give as, as God leads you? Will you serve where God wants you? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for uh, these four verses. Four little seemingly insignificant verses when we first read them, and yet, uh, wow, what a moment in the life of uh, the church in Antioch, and the life of the church in Jerusalem, and the life of, uh, of your kingdom uh, being realized and being acted upon uh, in the church. And Lord, may we be equally responsive in loving and serving each other so that maybe, maybe the people of Olympia and Lacey and Tumwater, Thurston County would, would look at Life Point Church and call us Christian because we're living in ways that reflect and loudly Proclaim the name of Jesus, and we pray in that name, amen.